and welcome to the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number one. I'm your host, Kyle Debbie. Since this is the first episode, I would like to quickly explain my background and the purpose of this podcast. Uh, this show is a product of the Skeptical Christian website, which can be found at www.skepticalchristian.com. In the main navigation at the site, there is a podcast link, and this is where you can go to find show notes, links to further resources, and it's also a place where you can leave comments or ask questions. I started the Skeptical Christian website during my junior year of high school in the year 2003, and the purpose of the site is to offer a rational defense of the Christian faith. And this podcast will just be an extension of that mission. Now, this podcast will be updated bi-monthly. Each episode will contain a detailed discussion of one area of importance to the Christian faith. And I will also have a news section, and near the end of the show I will have two other sections, one in which I offer one or two book reviews, and then finally a segment where I will answer audience questions. Um, And that brings me to the area of feedback. I want this podcast to be a resource both for Christians who have questions about their faith and also for skeptics who are not really convinced of the truth of Christianity. And so please, feel free to send me your questions. And as I mentioned earlier, you can do this at the podcast blog, uh, where there will be a place to leave comments. Alternatively, uh, you can email me at kyle at skepticalchristian.com. And I would love to hear your questions, and I will do my best to respond to them. And so without further ado, let's discuss the news. The January 19 issue of Time magazine contained a bunch of stories on the issue of consciousness. The main article, called The Mystery of Consciousness, was written by Steven Pinker. In the article, Pinker argues that progress in neuroscience can help us reject the idea of a soul in favor of the view that consciousness is simply something that the brain produces. And in philosophical language, belief in the existence of a soul is commonly known as substance dualism, while the view that Pinker espouses in the article is called physicalism. However, the article was very disappointing because it makes some basic mistakes and completely dismisses the idea of substance dualism without any real basis. Uh, Nevertheless, Pinker's approach to the issue of consciousness is very instructive because he makes the same mistakes that almost all physicalist philosophers make when considering the so-called mind-body problem. In the article, Pinker distinguishes between the so-called easy problem and the hard problem of consciousness. Basically, the easy problem is trying to determine the correlation between brain states and conscious experience. And uh, as many of us know, neuroscientists have been making great progress in this area, identifying the different uh, states the brain is in whenever we have certain conscious experiences. The hard problem, however, asks, why do we have first-person experience in the first place? From where does the felt experience of consciousness come? And so Pinker's approach in the article is to describe progress made on the easy problem and to act as though such progress refutes substance dualism and proves that physicalism is correct. However, he makes a basic mistake because he fails to realize that correlation does not entail exact similarity. So even if neuroscientists were able to identify the exact brain states that correlate with every conscious experience, 
it would not prove that brain states and conscious experience were the same thing or that conscious experience simply emerges from brain states. And since the easy problem uh, can't really help us decide between substance dualism and physicalism, that brings us to the hard problem, which uh, in the article Pinker pretty much dismisses as impossible to solve. He claims that the idea of a soul does not solve anything in this regard, but however, he is incorrect. Uh, the hard problem proves that there must be some sort of non-physical substance, in other words, a soul, that is responsible for felt conscious experience. Physicalism simply lacks the resources to solve this problem. However, the traditional Christian who believes in the concept of a soul or a mind behind a purely physical brain does have the resources necessary to solve the hard problem of consciousness. The main issue for today's show is the importance of apologetics and the meaning of faith. Now, it's pretty obvious that I think apologetics is important because otherwise I wouldn't be doing this podcast. But nevertheless, I think it is important to lay a foundation for this podcast by discussing the importance of a rational defense of the Christian faith. And also um, by providing an analysis of what faith really means. So I'm going to break down this issue into three separate areas. The first point, apologetics is important for non-Christians. So as a Christian myself, you know, I have a natural desire to want others to become Christians as well. And I think that the decision to become a Christian is the most important one a person can make in this life. Apologetics is useful for breaking down intellectual barriers to belief and providing positive reasons for someone to consider and ultimately accept Christianity. And so it's very important for this. However, many people criticize the effectiveness of arguments for convincing non-believers. I mean, after all, isn't it unlikely that a staunch non-believer is really going to become a Christian theist because of rational argumentation? Well, here I must admit that, for the most part, people are unlikely to convert on the basis of arguments alone. However, for two reasons, this does not eliminate the usefulness of apologetics. The first point is that some people are convinced by arguments. Even if a very few people are convinced by reason, uh, then all the effort is worth it. You know, each individual person is very important, and so we should not simply disregard those people who would be convinced on the basis of, of rational arguments. And then secondly, apologetics serves an important secondary task, namely, it helps to create a social environment in which the Christian worldview can be considered. If it were not for the work of Christian philosophers and Christian apologists, then Christianity would certainly be viewed as even more irrational than it already is by those that don't believe. But if on a cultural level, Christianity is viewed in such a bad light uh, by anybody who thinks rationally, uh, then this will be a major stumbling block. Therefore, Christian apologists serve an important function by helping to create a culture in which Christianity is, at the very least, worth thinking about. All right, well, the second main issue is that apologetics is important for doubting believers. The only thing more disheartening than a non-Christian persisting in unbelief is a Christian who leaves the faith. And I think that apologetics is even more important for influencing those who are already Christians than it is for influencing those who aren't. Just about every Christian has doubts at one time or another, myself included, and I don't necessarily think that this is bad. 
However, if doubts are never addressed and never satisfactorily answered, then they can lead to a diminished faith in God or even apostasy. And, you know, consider the case of Charles Templeton. He was a famous pastor and colleague of Billy Graham. But he had nagging doubts about Christianity, which were left unaddressed until he finally gave up the faith and went on to write a book called Farewell to God, in which he described his conversion to atheism. Apologetics can provide the answers that doubting believers seek and is therefore very important. The final issue is that apologetics is important for my development as a Christian. Apologetics is personally fulfilling and it helps me to grow as a Christian. You know, as a Christian, I've received insults about my supposed gullibility, ignorance, or stupidity. But apologetics allows me to be confident in my beliefs. It also allows me to grow and discover what I really truly do believe and helps me build a solid foundational worldview. And so apologetics is important for myself as a Christian. Well, next I'd like to talk real briefly about the true meaning of faith. Because in order to truly assess the importance of apologetics, uh, we simply have to clarify what do we mean by the word faith. And one common objection to apologetics is that it eliminates the need for faith. How can we have faith in God if we know he exists because of arguments? The problem here is that there is a serious flaw in many people's understanding of the true meaning of biblical faith. And many think that faith means believing without evidence, or, as Mark Twain famously quipped, quote, faith is believing what you know ain't so. However, in the Bible, faith actually involves placing our trust in what you have reason to believe is true. And this definition of faith actually makes much more sense of Scripture. After all, Jesus performed miracles and signs which showed that he was who he claimed to be. And after Jesus' death, Paul and others argued for the truth of Christianity on the basis of evidence. For example, Paul explicitly appeals to arguments and evidence on behalf of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it is clear from Scripture that Jesus did not demand blind faith, and also the apostles did not preach blind faith. Jesus Christ provided plenty of evidence for his own trustworthiness. So we should place our faith, i.e., our trust and loyalty, in Jesus Christ. Now, some people may claim that Hebrews 11.1 1 shows that faith really is supposed to be blind. Uh, the verse says, quote, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. However, in context, this verse does not support the notion of blind faith. First of all, notice that in the examples listed in Hebrews 11, uh, below this verse, all of these people have received undeniable proof of God's existence and power. And so the overall context of this passage argues against the blind faith interpretation. This passage actually means that faith, which is loyalty and trust in God, is the substance, which here means an assurance, of things hoped for, which means that things are expected by trust. Notice that this trust is not blind trust. It is trust in God and his promises, whom we have good reason to believe. The verse ends, And the evidence of things not seen, which here means that we expect continuing favor and trustworthiness from God, since he has already proven himself worthy of our trust. And so basically, this passage is saying that we know we can trust God, 
and we believe this for good reasons. But since we trust God due to what he has already done, we can trust that God will fulfill his promises in the future, including the promise of salvation. Notice that there is no irrational leap into the dark involved here. If I have a friend who is always trustworthy and always looks out for my best interests, then it is very rational to believe that he will keep his promises and look after my interests in the future. And so it is clear that faith is not a blind leap in the dark. And that is why apologetics is not only relevant, but also important. And so I would like to close this section by mentioning 1 Peter 3.15, which says, quote, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. All right, well, it's time for a couple book reviews. First up is the recent bestseller, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, which was published in September 2006. In past books, including The Selfish Gene and The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins has mostly focused on the issue of evolution. However, The God Delusion deals with the issue of religion directly. Although the book had a very broad scope, I think it should be evaluated on its most fundamental goal. Does the book demonstrate that God does not exist? And oddly enough, there are only two chapters that are really dedicated to answering this question head-on. The third chapter deals with arguments for God's existence, and while the fourth chapter specifically deals with the design argument. And unfortunately, I found both chapters to be very weak on several points. The first problem is that Dawkins really fails to address the most relevant arguments for God's existence. For example, although he dismisses the ontological argument in a mere few pages, he doesn't address more recent versions of the argument that are made by modern philosophers. So in particular, he does not even address Alvin Plantinga's version of the ontological argument based on possible worlds. So if Dawkins is trying to demonstrate that God does not exist, then he should at least attempt to address the most recent and most relevant arguments made by today's Christian philosophers. However, I'm not even a proponent of the ontological argument, so I'm willing to let this oversight slide. But Dawkins also fails to address or even mention the Kalam cosmological argument. And although he briefly addresses the cosmological arguments from Thomas Aquinas, there is no mention of any other versions of the argument, including the very popular Kalam version. In my opinion, the Kalam cosmological argument is an extremely powerful proof of theism. When it comes to the argument from design in chapter 4, I think that Dawkins really fails to address the broad scope of the argument. And I think it is very important to distinguish between the different types of design arguments. For example, some versions of the design argument focus on the cosmological constants and laws of the universe, while others focus on the amazing biodiversity on the planet. But since Dawkins' specialty is evolutionary theory, he focuses on evolution as a supposed refutation of the design argument. However, even if we granted the complete validity of evolutionary theory, uh, this simply would not affect arguments from design which focus on things like cosmological constants rather than biodiversity on the planet. And to his credit, Dawkins does at least acknowledge the difference between the two arguments. But he makes a tremendous logical leap claiming that Darwinian evolution should bring about, quote, consciousness-raising about the possibility of an evolution-type answer to the question 
of why the fundamental constants are so well fine-tuned in the universe to allow for life. However, there is no justification given for taking this logical leap. Dawkins proposes the multiverse hypothesis, according to which there are many universes that exist separate from our own. Now, obviously, if there are billions and billions of universes, then the probability that at least one of them contains life is much higher. However, in my opinion, the multiverse theory has a slew of problems, not least of which is the total lack of evidence for multiple universes. But setting this aside, if Dawkins wants to refute the design argument by using the multiverse hypothesis, he has to offer at least some sort of evidence for the theory. He can't rely on, quote, consciousness raising from Darwinian evolution. But since he fails to offer any evidence for multiple universes, he also fails to really address the design argument from the cosmological constants. The rest of The God Delusion uh, focuses on peripheral issues. For example, two chapters are dedicated to explaining the supposed evolutionary development of religion and morality. And pretty much the remainder of the book is focused on Dawkins describing some of the supposed evils committed by religion, both past and present, particularly focused on Christianity. However, these issues don't really have a direct bearing on whether or not God exists. And so they can't help Dawkins to establish his main goal for the book. And although the writing style does make the book somewhat enjoyable to read, the fact that Dawkins really kind of fails to address the design argument from cosmological constants, and the fact that he fails to even mention several key arguments for God's existence, means that ultimately he cannot establish his conclusion that God doesn't exist. And so my rating for The God Delusion, two stars out of five. Well, next I'd like to offer a brief review of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, which was published in 1998. This book was first in his series of Case of books, including The Case for Faith and also the more recent The Case for a Creator. Lee Strobel is actually a journalist, and for the book he interviews leading Christian scholars, including people like Craig Blomberg, William Lane Craig, and J.P. Moreland, on questions about the life of Jesus Christ. He asks questions such as, Can the Gospels really be trusted? Was Jesus really convinced he was the Son of God? And are there any supporting facts that point to the resurrection? Well, the book covers a very broad scope, which is both good and bad. And the biggest drawback is that Strobel is not always able to go into enough detail on each individual subject. However, he does offer recommended further readings at the end of each chapter for those who are interested in exploring the topics in depth. Strobel's writing style is absolutely brilliant, easy to read and engaging. This book is truly fun to read, and it can appeal to a wide audience. So if you haven't already done so, make sure you pick up a copy of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. My rating for this book, 4.5 stars out of 5. And now it's time for the audience question. And since this is the first podcast, we don't really have a question directly submitted for this episode. However, I did recently receive an email question that I would like to respond to for this week. This is actually a quotation from Bertrand Russell, a famous non-Christian philosopher. It says, quote, If I were to suggest that between the Earth and Mars there is a china teapot revolving about the sun in an elliptical orbit, nobody would be able to disprove my assertion, provided I were careful to add that the teapot is too small to be revealed even by our most powerful telescopes. But if I were to go on to say that, since my assertion cannot be disproved, it is intolerable presumption on the part of human reason to doubt it, I should rightly be thought to be talking nonsense. 
If, however, the existence of such a teapot were affirmed in ancient books, taught as the sacred truth every Sunday, and instilled into the minds of children at school, hesitation to believe in its existence would become a mark of eccentricity, and entitle the doubter to the attentions of the psychiatrist in an enlightened age, or of the inquisitor in an earlier time. Well, this is not really an argument per se, it is actually more of a rhetorical device. But the key sentence is this, but if I were to go on to say that, since my assertion cannot be disproved, it is intolerable presumption on the part of human reason to doubt it, I should rightly be thought to be talking nonsense. And personally, I don't think it is intolerable presumption to doubt the existence of something for which there is no evidence. However, I do think that there is good evidence for the existence of God, unlike the invisible teapot, and so the analogy breaks down because there is evidence for God's existence. Of course, people like Bertrand Russell might think that there isn't any good evidence for God's existence, but, however, this is an issue for another episode. So again, I would like to stress that I am very interested in answering audience questions, so please write in by emailing me at kyle at skepticalchristian.com, or you can comment on the podcast posts at skepticalchristian.com. And also, if anyone wants to send in an audio file of them asking a question, I would love to integrate those into the show. That's all for this week for the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number one. Thanks for joining me.